because what Hannah was describing earlier, when you, you think about a, a two champagne growers um, that might both be able to say that they're an organic grower, you know, they might be using organic chemicals to uh, fertilize their lands or organic pesticides. Um, but the diversity is just uh, not present. And what we're after is that diversity and building the soil. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back for another episode of Decoding Cocktails, be it daytime, afternoon time, nighttime, whenever it is that you prefer to listen in wherever you are. Thanks for being here. My guests today are Hannah Williams and Donovan Ingram. They both work for the restaurant Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is in Terrytown, New York. Uh, not too far outside of New York City. Hannah is the beverage director, and part of Donovan's role is overseeing their coffee and grain tea programs. I first became of Blue Hill and its renowned chef, Dan Barber, via the show Chef's Table around 2015 or so. And while the series as a large uh, captivated me, and the episode about Dan really intrigued me, it really was when I picked up a copy of his book, the third plate that I felt the uh, proverbial ground, proverbial, that's the word, proverbial ground beneath my feet shift. For me, it really is a stunning work and challenged the way I think about a lot of things. And I've read it several times and there are several passages I come back to often. Um, and we'll get into some of this in the conversation, but the primary thesis is that agriculture has been asking the wrong question for too long. And the question has always been, how can we grow more of this thing or these things instead of how can we make this as delicious as possible? Now, clearly there is a need to make sure that people have an adequate amount of food put in front of them. But as Dan digs into it in the book in greater depth, we discover that uh, at times it's really, uh, you know, how responsibly are we using things? Uh, how are things being allocated? So it, there is really an interesting merit to his conversation. Clearly, we need to make sure people are not starving. But what we often discover from it is that based on the abundance of things like soy and corn and other things that we grow, we're putting these food ingredients into places that they don't necessarily really belong. But anyways, I could get into such a digression on this, and I think it's a very important topic and really uh, to make sure I'm not too far afield. When it comes down to this idea of flavor, uh, part of the reason I brought Hannah and Donovan in was I was interested to hear their perspective on how this ethos applies to chasing flavor in the beverage program. And, you know, as you'll hear in the discussion, I think it's important for us to think about as consumers is in order to have delicious beef or sugarcane, carrots, or agave, we have to take care of the land. And if the land uh, is 
taken for granted, treated as disposable, or as something that chemicals can fix. Ultimately, we're not only hurting the planet, but we're damaging the food system and the quality of food that comes out of the ground. Um, there is, you know, something you're going to hear them say, and I think, again, this is an important metaphor for how we think about wine, you know, whiskey, whatever, um, which is if you, one, you'll hear Hannah and Donovan talk about 100% whole wheat bread. And if you watch the show Chef's Table, they're at the series, you will see this moment in the episode. It's very, very clear. You're going to hear them talk about how mind-blowingly delicious 100% whole wheat bread is. And we think we know what whole wheat bread is here, but the reality is, is that most milling of wheat is not done so that uh, it is going to be at peak flavor. And this is in part to make our products more shelf stable, which is important, but it has often come at the cost of things being very flavorful. And one of the examples that Donovan has talked about is that uh, buckwheat is a product that is used to make things like soba noodles, for example. But there are only two mills in the whole country, in our whole country, that can mill things to where they're going to be as delicious as possible. And so as we think about having not only sustainable agriculture, but really flavorful agriculture, at times some of the equipment that has been set up is set up to more maximize for yield as opposed to flavor. Um, so anyways, uh, this could be a whole diatribe and there'll be more on it uh, in the newsletter that will come out the following Tuesday. Um, so I feel like that is really where we're going to talk about a little bit today. Um, there'll be a lot of links to things right here. For those listening in the St. Louis area, uh, just for fun, uh, Tara, Tara and Michael Galena of Vissia are also alumni of Blue Hill. And so uh, you'll be able to find links for Blue Hill as well as Hannah, that's at Hanza, H-A-N-N-Z-A-H. And uh, Donovan's got a real fun one, uh, which is at God damn it. Uh, that's goddamn with an M-N-I-T Donovan. Uh, they're a real treat, and I look forward to you guys being able to hear about what they're working on. Enjoy. Hannah and Donovan, first of all, thanks for taking time to chat. I'm I'm honestly very, very excited to, to talk with you guys. We're excited to speak with you as well. So Hannah, I figured I wanted to start with you. So I've, I've heard you speak a little bit about, you know, you're in Edinburgh, you know, doing a semester abroad, you join a, you know, wine club and mostly to meet people. And, you know, here you are now, you know, role of sommelier, but do you remember, was there a particular glass of wine and evening, you know, is there a moment you remember feeling kind of called to this? And it could have been well after Scotland too, but is there a member you moment you remember feeling called to this work? Yeah, it's a common question in the wine world. Like what was your aha moment with wine? And to me, it was less about wine itself. And it was more about the people. I had been in lots of different like groups of people in my life. Like I was a ballet dancer before I was uh, into hospitality and wine. I was an English major and I never felt like I quite found my my people and my group uh, within those worlds and very intense worlds, uh, respectively, especially the dance world. And I think when I got to hospitality, it was the first time like I felt the most like myself in a way. And so I really loved working with 
people of all different backgrounds and ages and levels of experience. And so we all fall into it in weird ways. But I think I fell in love more with the people than I did with the actual wine itself. And then, of course, like like in Scotland blind tasting, I went from like zero to 100 very fast where I was not even legal to drink over here. And I didn't know what Pinot Grigio versus Sauvignon Blanc was. Um, But then seeing how wine and tasting wine casually or professionally brought people together, that was really what like drew me to it ultimately. And, and Donovan, what about for you? What has, what, what spoke to you about kind of service and hospitality? What, how did you find yourself where you are today? Oh man, it starts when I was 12, actually. Um, I started dishwashing for money in a country club. Um, not really any intention other than being able to, you know, buy the next skateboard. Um, but it wasn't until after after university, um, studied um, business and accounting, actually, I ended up working for um, a master's only Christopher Bates uh, in my hometown. I was um, introduced into some of these beautiful spirits like chartreuse and drinking some old wine with Chris for the first time. And my whole life, I've been so interested in adventure and discovery and novelty and to meet someone who who was so generous and um had such knowledge inside of him to to share these um different beverages from all across the world i was like hooked and you know from there you start reading about all the great hotel bars across the world and the white suits and um you know the leather aprons um and it just kept going um so i'm i try to pride myself on being someone a lot like uh, Christopher, very interested in studying for uh, the sommelier exam, but also taking a deep appreciation for tea and coffee and uh, all things bar. Hmm. I've certainly heard uh, one of my good friends uh, certainly spoke to like, he remembers having his first last word and like, you know, like the the chartreuse is just like says, look over here. Right. And, uh, and I would agree as a late joiner of the industry, um, I found my way through the professional sphere, so to speak, but I was always uh, I was always the black sheep in the group. And so, yeah, so I certainly know what it means to suddenly feel like you're home in terms of, you know, I'm a performer, you know, and uh, it, when you're wearing a suit and tie in a workplace, sometimes that goes over well. And sometimes you're like, all right, tone it down a little bit over there. So, <laughs> totally. so one of the reasons I was very excited, uh, you know, probably first came to hear about Blue Hill through, you know, the chef's table show, of course. But when I read uh, the third plate and really kind of began to hear things about flavor being kind of like this central item we needed to think about, in particular, how it's talked about the concept of flavor versus yield. And uh, that speaks so powerfully to me as I think about educating people on uh picking out spirits as well. It's like, you know, you don't always have to buy something that's the most expensive, but to understand at a certain point in time, it's like, I always say like for a lot of people, their experience with like white rum is a bottle of Bacardi Superior. And it's just, I mean, it can be whatever other people think, but I feel like overall it's very devoid of flavor. And then they try a much more flavorful rum and suddenly a daiquiri or a mojito is suddenly a much more interesting drink. So 
you know, with respect to kind of how you begin to even approach your work, Hannah, you know, at, you know, Blue Hill and Stone Barns, you know, how does that begin to inform how you make your choices about what to put on the menu, uh, about what's even in stock? I realize that's a giant question, but how do you begin to think about this underarching flavor objective with respect to staffing a beverage program? Yeah, flavor is everything. Like if it's not delicious, whether it's like an experimental green we're working with or a by the glass wine or a really old bottle of burgundy that's a few thousand of dollars that you know you sell in the dining room. If it's not delicious, then what are you doing? Like if it's just esoteric and weird, especially if it's expensive, or even if it's inexpensive, and if it's just like, you know, an overly you know, natural wine that has like tons of bread and mouse taint. Like if it's not delicious, then why are you drinking it in the first place? And so I think flavor and deliciousness is really at the core of everything we do here. Um, and certainly shapes the way I buy for the bar, for cider and beer selection, uh, for the cellar itself. Um, it's a core tenant. And so Donovan and I were just discussing it before, but kind of the beauty of Blue Hill at Stone Martins as it is right now is you don't need high quantities of things. We see a very finite amount of people in the dining room right now, which for us in the summer, when we're amidst a very busy wedding season, we're seating around 45 people a night, three nights a week. So before the pandemic, and especially when I started around six years ago, we were doing double, triple that, and sometimes double services. And so you did need quantity of things things, whether it was wine or spirits or the cocktails we were offering. And right now with a much smaller scope, we're able to select and be hyper-selective and choosing the better growers and farmers we want to support, choosing the better distilleries, the better brewers, the better wine producers. And sometimes we could have one bottle of something and that's all we need. We've had one bottle of something and that's lasted us quite a while um, and so it allows us to focus on these like really small people in such a large beverage community and get to share their stories uh, with people because we're not pumping out the numbers uh, like we used to. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if you weren't, you know, sounds like a lovely place to be, have to visit, obviously. But uh, so when you apply that thinking outside of, stone barns, whether that's in your own life or in general. So for someone like myself, educating consumers, for someone at home, for someone running a bar program, you know, I think obviously there's a level of like study and rigor required to understand what do good practices look like, but are there questions you try to ask yourself? And maybe it's really just you're meeting the growers, you're traveling everywhere, but how do you begin to identify what does what do good practices look like versus what do, you know, less interesting or uh, even uh, poor pr practices look like? Is there is there a way you, again, I know agriculture is a massive thing, but I'm also interested in the discernment for people of how do they begin to make decisions like you guys are making? Yeah, two things popped up immediately. To me, it was like, and I, I'm going to try not to make this super wine focused because that's obviously my scope here. That's all right. Um, but I think when you, when I visited uh, Champagne for the first time and I, with my own eyes, saw a vineyard 
that had cover crops and vitto forestry, like literally like trees growing between the vines. And you look one row over and you see like an industrial farmed, like just gray, brown, depleted earth, completely like decimated chemicals. Like seeing those two things, it's like just clear as day. You don't need to know anything about spirits or wine or beverage to see the difference in how that land is treated. And sometimes I think winemaking and farming are confused and we really want to support people that are doing right by the land and by the soil primarily. And so we don't just, you know, support all natural wine or spirits producers like blindly. In fact, like, as I've already mentioned, I think there might be actually a lot of issues with like stability if you're just not adding sulfites to something for the sake of saying you're a natural producer, but farming and winemaking or distilling are two very different things. Um, and then in terms of like just an average consumer, you know, the more I learn about beverages, the more I'm, I'm, inter- I'm less interested in like the expensive and rare and more interested in like those everyday things that are just amazing. Like only a few months ago did I try a Probitas white rum with a super knowledgeable wine rep, um, Jake Cahill. And that to me got me more excited than I've been all year about spirits. Cause I was like, this is the perfect rum. This is perfect daiquiri rum. We wanted to make everything with it. It's not expensive. We teach these botanical beverage classes to like the Stone Barns members, like cocktail classes. And a lot of it is more about home bar curation and what can you actually make at home using pickling ingredients and the same things we use here at the Blue Hill Main Dining Room Bar, but toned down a little bit so you could actually make it at at home throughout the year. And being able to tell a group of people like you can go to Aster Wine and Spirits and buy a bottle of Probitostrum and it's going to be $25 and it's going to be the best thing on your bar especially for the spring and summer, like that gets me so much more excited than finding like a DRC Marc de Bourgogne from 93 these days, because you get to actually interact with that. And you're, you feel like you're sharing a secret with someone like, oh my God, Donovan, you have to get this from like, I don't know how people don't know about that. And that's when we get more excited to sell and talk and share those stories and give someone like a snackery, like a little baby sized daiquiri uh, between courses if they're industry or you know into into cocktails or something so I think those little moments kind of mean more at the end of the day the, the longer you work in the industry and with fine beverages you know so one probitas is incredible so yes shout out to Richard Seal and the team uh, it's great product but yeah I, I liked the idea as well that to your point about the painting, the uh, not so picturesque uh, scape at the at the vineyard, of what does it really look like? Because one of the things that just made so in- much intuitive sense, again digging into kind of the ethos of Blue Hill, is this idea of like, if we're not caring for the soil, then how can we expect for it to give us great ingredients? And we need to think about these things not just a season in advance, but how do we begin to treat it more as part of this broader ecosystem. So I, I I think that this very holistic standpoint of of how do we approach this is 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 valuable. Donovan, in your in your world, you know, with regards to sourcing, you know, coffee and and tea as well, you know, I I certainly think about the when I first began to really discover like, you know, well roasted, you know, well made coffee and tasting it compared to other stuff. Are there 
you know, when you're thinking about uh, producers to source as well, how are you approaching what you're eyeballing and what you find interested? Flavor is obviously part of it, but how do you make that decision? Are there things you look for or things you try to avoid? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak from what we source for, at the restaurant currently. And I think that'll be pretty indicative of what I'm interested in because um, I align with it so well. We're currently sourcing coffee from Buna, um, a roaster in Mexico. Are you familiar, Chris? I'm not. No. Buna. Uh, okay. Buna, Mexico City. Incredible roaster. Um, the coffee is delicious. But the story uh, for me is what's key. Um, Lalo Perez is the proprietor. And what he's interested in doing is converting and looking at systems of coffee growing um, that are more towards an agroforestry system and really bolstering the amount of diversity on these different uh, plots of land. And he's doing this so in an incredible way. He's really working hand in hand with the different farmers, um, even at sometimes uh, paying for them to introduce these new systems. And the result is this collaboration we have right now with Irving Farms, a roaster here in uh, New York, um, where we're looking at a very specific plot of land, um, just a, a few acres um, in Veracruz, where Lalo asked the question of what if, what if we could make an agricultural system and create a product out of that that outcompeted um, on an ecological standpoint an old growth forest? Um, and that's the coffee we're working with right now. He introduced over 70 different varieties of uh, native plants to the area uh, on the, the plot. And the coffee is incredible. You know, when, when, I'm, when I'm thinking about coffee, I feel like there's some really big requirements like that it has to hit. And for instance, the Buna just really knocks off a, a lot of those checkpoints. You know, are they interested in creating diverse systems with deliciousness being the forefront. Um, yeah. Got it. No, it's, I, uh, yeah, I liked the idea as well of uh, what does the, what does this land want to do as opposed to how do we tame it to force it to do what we want it to do? And so asking more like based on climate and where we are, like how do we allow this land to kind of provide us what it wants as opposed to force it? You know, we have this, image, I feel like for a long time of like, we are here to tame the earth as opposed to how do we work with it in a way. Um, what was I, I was just thinking, um, I don't, you know, Hannah, I know in some of our initial back and forth, I don't want to uh, put you into uh, fields of profession that aren't yours, but, you know, I've heard this before from people, but uh, I've heard talk about things like what might be good organic versus bad organic or less beneficial. I feel like in general, for a lot of people, when they see that seal, they go, oh, this is, this is, this is great. Are there, are there things you can tell us about when organic farm is not being beneficial to the land or the plants? What do people need to know about how to better think about organic farming? If you, if you could. There's so many different organic, biodynamic, sustainable, certifying bodies in the food, wine, spirits, coffee, tea, beverage world these days, that it's 
very clear to me that some of it is pure marketing. Uh, like if you're at a grocery store, especially an American grocery store, and you are just inundated with like so many options and choices, like that is what we specialize in in America is options and choices, like seven different types of 2% milk to choose from. And you're deciding and you know, you're in a certain budget. And then if you see one that has, you know, if you're even thinking about eggs and the pasteurized versus the, all the different monikers you see on a, a carton of eggs, like you want to make the best decision for the earth. You don't want to spend $18 on a carton, but you want to make the best decision. So seeing something like a catchword, um, like pasture raise or organic or whatever it is, it does catch you as a consumer. So I totally understand the use of it. Um, I just think about, you know, my, my journey in wine really coincided with like the boom of the natural wine movement. And it was so crazy because I was a young, interested sommelier and I really was like the right like age range too to get into that. But then I started quickly seeing how like the natural movement or even like the raw wine fair, like it just, it wasn't exactly what I thought and it didn't always translate to like a sound product or some, a bottle of wine that was really delicious. Um, and so I found often those terms misleading and I've learned, and I'm still learning so much on the food side here, working at Blue Hill, but like the difference between like hydroponic farming, which sounds really good from afar. And I felt pretty good about buying my like butter lettuce heads from a hydroponic farm until I actually like learned the difference and not to like have virtual virtue signaling or anything like that in there. But the more you learn, the more you realize like there's so much out there um, and like we were talking earlier about the real organic movement and some proponents of that. And just I think just the more you learn, the better equipped you are as a consumer. Um, so, yeah, do you want to add to that? I feel like you're yeah. a little bit more tied up into the Definitely. farming end of that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you said it yourself earlier, Chris. Um, building soil is what we're really after. And all of these things that we've been talking about today are just tools to build the soil. Um, so when we're thinking about, I, I don't know if maybe good versus bad organic is the way to look at it. Maybe um, maybe just uh, maybe real versus not real. Because <laughs> um, what Hannah was describing earlier, when you, you think about a, a two champagne growers um, that might both be able to say that they're an organic grower you know they might be using organic chemicals to uh, fertilize their lands or organic pesticides um, but the diversity is just uh, not present and what we're after is that diversity and building the soil creating resilience offering many um, different varieties and, and e ecologies for different uh, birds and insects to thrive in and when we're thinking about these beverages that's that's what we want we want it we want to be able to create these delicious things that will promote farmers really having a wide range of i just pointed out a farm that you can't see um, <laughs> um wide range of varieties in the soil we we talk about hannah and i were just talking about this in particular we're heading in we're in the middle of blueberry season here in the northeast um, but we had the unique opportunity to uh, 
um, get a little head start on the blueberry season this year um, after meeting with a incredible blueberry producer uh, last year. His name's um, Hugh and his farm is called King's Grove. And he's one of the few blueberry producers that are growing in soil. Almost all blueberry production in the United States, that is, is moving towards hydroponics. Um, and his blueberries are so good. Mind-blowing. Like, Mind-blowing. Like we did, it was 50, 60 of us in a taste test. Yeah. And there was not one person that took the King Grove blueberries, ate them, and could not tell you like, this one is on a different playing field they're so good they were addictively good they're like grand cru blueberries but from florida just outside of orlando which was impressive being from florida myself but it like that's kind of what ruins you here as well as like you taste the best of something and then you can never go back but we also got the opportunity a lot of our staff was flown out there at 6 a.m on like a monday day off and we I, I didn't go personally, but uh, so many of our front and back of house team got to go and harvest the blueberries with them and then made dinner with the family and then came back Tuesday and back at work on on Wednesday. And so when we find a farmer of any kind that we love, like we want to highlight those people because just like the American supermarket, we have, you know, and luckily we're so lucky to have so many options and choices. So when we're choosing between those two champagne producers to feature by the glass. I'm going to choose the one that is doing better farming if they're, you know, a similar price point, because that's a story and a person I want to talk about more than the latter, which might be a really delicious champagne in its own right. We might have it on the list, but in terms of who we're going to feature and speak about, we really try to be mindful about choosing the people that are working with the land the best as well. Hmm. So, I definitely want to come back to the blueberries because I feel like that's a very important point. But going back to kind of the diversity piece real quick as we were talking about that. So one of the things that certainly is, I feel like, very much in a lot of the conversational vernacular about food right now is this idea of like monocrops. Uh, so it, it, to kind of make sure I'm teasing this out properly, when you're thinking about great producers, it's like... If we show up and all you're growing is number two dent corn for whiskey for acres and acres, this is less contributing to that diversity, the way that farming used to look, which was you kind of have rows of things interspersed. And also one is taking something from the soil. Oftentimes one is putting that thing back into the soil. So in part, as we maybe think about what is less beneficial organic, that part of it is, is this being sourced from a facility that is just acres of spinach for forever? Um, assuming spinach is still even grown in the ground. I don't know. Maybe it's grown in hydroponics. But is that, to make sure that I followed that, Donovan, is that when, when you're speaking of diversity, we're kind of thinking of, and even um, I know in some mezcal producers, they're thinking more of this milpa style farming of like, interspersing different varietals as opposed to the often the monocrop of agave uh, tequila. So, Definitely. A, a few things come to mind. Um, when I'm thinking about adding in diversity, I'm, I'm right there with you of, I'm not terribly interested in uh, a person that has, you know, thousands of acres of corn planted, but would be more interested in if a producer is rotating their grains um, 
through, let's say, some of the off off grains like barley in this country. That is, I mean, we know that um, in Scotland and in Ireland, we love we love barley for whiskey. But when I'm thinking about bourbon producers or or uh, corn being cultivated in America, if they're if they have cover crops, if they're rotating through buckwheat, if they're rotating through rye, if they're rotating through barley. Um, these are the types of practices we're really interested in. And but the tough thing about what you're saying is it's very costly and it requires an immense amount of labor and effort to to even just have one extra rotation if you're you know if you're if you're savvy enough to be able to intersperse like you're saying like they have historically or even just rotating um different crops each year say we have corn one year and then barley the next you know how labor intensive and costly that can be so what we really hope to do with and what we hope to support are these people that are going to bring value from those off rotations like barley and rye um, as a way to incentivize these growers to to have this more regenerative rotation based practice you know something i so i was doing all the reading all the listening to you know interviews dan's given podcast hannah's done trying to get ready for this and something i was thinking this was like a 2010 interview he gave but even around something like something as basic as citrus he was using the word you know that you know it it's saying hey like it's not from upstate new york uh i still love it but it is a luxury in a way and so I I've, I have to go pick up a copy of a book uh, that I'm going to read it. So it's a it's written by an Italian woman and it's basically it's called Cucina Povera and so it's imp impoverished cooking. And part of what I think this has to we have to figure out over time is that our cuisine is one built out of abundance in terms of like yes I want my 16 ounce porterhouse steak and how do we begin to think about reducing that so we can have better flavored, more sustainable, better for the world. But like to realize that like, and again, for, for many of us, the plate has started to change, but there are still times when, well, I want, but I want seven cocktails or whatever, you know, as opposed to maybe have one really good one. Um, so anyways, I think it's just, there's a mindset requirement that we have to be willing to pay a little bit more for good quality stuff because we're, we don't need it to anchor a third of the plate. We can have it on a reduced portion of the plate, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. I was even thinking of something with the monocrops and speaking of like rotational crops that we've done here because we're, you know, we're surrounded um, by Stone Barn Center and all the amazing work they do here. Um, and Donovan and I were both collectively obsessed with a tea company in New York that you might be familiar with called Kettle Tea. Okay. okay. And, you know, I think personally, we're both and so many people here, I feel like most Blue Hill staff members are just obsessed with like the best things in whatever category they're in, like the blueberries, tea, coffee. We all go seek these things out on our Monday and Tuesdays off. But Kettle Tea uh, and the people behind it really just are incredible. And they have their own matcha mill that we would go visit in Greenpoint. We loved matcha. And it really is, you know, you have to source it from very specific producers. And when you have like the best matcha and it's, you know, milled in front of you, you're just, it's like a mind blowing experience. 
So Donovan actually applied that same process of making matcha, but using all cover crops from Stone Barn. So he made a cover crop matcha that is still on our menu. We would do it table side um, and beautiful like earthenware and pottery uh, made by Minami at Kettle. And I think it was one of like the coolest experiences I've ever seen beverage wise, again, not alcohol related, but here at Blue Hill and, and tying it into the menu. So we would do it with a cover crop dish that uh, Dan was making in the kitchen. It was like, it looked like a tabbouleh or a salad. And then Donovan would come over and make you tiny little cups of cover crop matcha. And so it's not even theoretical for us. It's like, we can actually go out into the field that's outside this window here uh, to our left and have really creative people that like are combining flavor, creativity, and weaving that into the dining experience here, which I had never really seen before. Yeah. Did you want to go, Chris? I'm sorry. I don't want to. No, please, please go ahead, please. When, when we're trying to think about cover crops and what what this kitchen means and the potential to 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 create these cuisines around these ideas here at Blue Hill like the cover crop matcha for me it, it kind of was like a switch you know uh, people had been working on this same sort of idea at Blue Hill for some time like I I won't say that I was the the true the true origin of the cover crop matcha I think that uh my past tea um experience and understanding of a more traditional production of matcha um, and preparation of matcha was very helpful to uh, catch Chef Dan's eye. Um, So I'll I'll have to give some credit to Andrew Lutzmore um, before uh, one of our um, special projects manager for, you know, leading the charge and I'm picking up his torch. But um, what we're interested in is this cuisine of the off type things. So cover crops for most for most farmers are like we were talking about earlier, Chris, very expensive. And you don't really catch a you don't make a revenue off cover crops. I mean, you do if you have a very long term vision of your own land and you're a steward of it and you can you know that you're gonna be able to get that money back in the higher quality, more delicious um vegetables and grains um, and animals later but from year to year when a farmer needs money cover crops leaving a whole entire plot of land into cover is kind of absurd like it's a big ask for someone who needs the money this year to buy equipment to buy next year's seeds to keep the farm going so the matcha seems like a really small idea but if we can take the cover crops and remove the idea of the cover part of that word where you're thinking okay the cover crop is just this tool we have to make the soil better but what if the tool that we had to make the soil better was just the crop right so to make the matcha from the cover crop is to negate the idea of the cover because then it just becomes we're harvesting pea shoots and rye shoots for matcha that people will drink and people will demand because they taste it and it's delicious. Um, so that's like the mentality that we have when it comes to these these little um, tweaks and creations. So first of all, 
I, I love that. But yeah, I, I think it's so one to make sure we're on the same page for for everybody, all the the millions out there listening. Uh, uh, when we say cover crop, the whole idea is that um, you know, so you, you take like you know, and, and this is the point you're kind of moving away from Donovan, which I like, but it's like. You know, we think of the star of the show as it's the corn, it's the strawberry, whatever. And then in an off season, we put a plant in the soil to basically help regenerate the soil. And now it's kind of like asking the question, well, what if the cover crop was also equally a star of the show too, as opposed to this like, well, I guess we have to because we want to be good to the environment like movement right here. So... One of the things I, because like, I, I, you know, cocktails, booze, spirits, wine, it's all a gateway to like this broader conversation about stuff. So one of the things that I liked about the blueberries, and the answer to this question is probably just go to your farmer's market and see what you can find that's local and amazing. But I feel like sometimes too, for the lay person out there, the problem is, so I did, I did two strawberry infusions of tequila last year. One of them was store-bought, you know, uh, you know farm, you know, macro farm strawberries, the other one with local strawberries. And the flavor and color that came off the two was so markedly different. And I feel like even the infusion of the spirit aside, it's like, I think for a lot of people, they don't have enough taste memory. When they taste that, maybe they haven't tasted that, uh, the, your magic man in Florida's blueberries, but I think it's a uh, even if we taste a farm fresh one, we haven't tasted it right next to one that was hydroponically farmed. And so we forget like, or don't fully associate like, oh, this is, so, you know, it could just be finding your fresh matcha maker. But I think like for people out there, it's taste Earl Grey tea from that you bought for three nickels at the grocery store against Earl Grey tea that's made by a local tea producer. So I don't know if you guys have any like favorites, but I'd love to hear like, man, people should try their best this against like, you know, the most ordinary this, because I feel like those AB tests really power people to understand the difference. It's a dangerous game to start playing. I mean, I, it, and this is really in my personal life too, but you take white mustache mulberry yogurt that is very hard to find, but you can find it at Grand Central at Murray's Cheese. And you have that next to a cherry Yoplait. Like, they're not even the same product. Like, it's like crack cocaine, like that uh, yogurt. And then you start reading about her story and bringing her cultural influence influence and Persian style of like straining whey and cheese and then you try spare tonic that's made with that same whey that she's producing from her yogurt production it's just like it, it just your whole world explodes but yeah you can do it with you know perfectly in season strawberries like I was just in Oregon for the first time and I had like a hood river strawberry and they're so tiny they look like the little alpine strawberries in Europe but they're so dark to their core. I had these strawberries with whipped cream three times in 24 hours, like three different people served them to me and I ate the whole thing, whether it was like lunch or breakfast it was embarrassing, but very true. And then you have that next to like a store-bought big strawberry 
and it's like white in the center, you know, and it's just the concentration of those two things is completely different. Uh, and you do it with like a standard green tea packet, you know, just whatever the store-bought brand is or hotel room brand of green tea. And then you have it next to a perfectly brewed cup of like Sencha kettle tea. And I mean, we could do it with anything. You could start giving us, you know, categories, but it's, it really is like awe-inspiring. And yeah, if I'm opening my fridge at home, I'd rather have like eight of those products and like 80 just like store-bought mass produced. And of course it's like, we don't all have like the money and time and sourcing ability to do that. But it just makes you think about everything that you're putting in your mouth. Every producer you're supporting, whether it's a yogurt producer or wine producer or spirit producer, and it, it goes on forever and ever. And it just makes me want to find the best in every category. Can I add something, Chris? Please. The the thing that's interesting, though, you know, I, for, for me, uh, one of the, you know, Hannah's Alpine strawberry moment is the first time that I had 100% whole wheat bread here, or um, when I had bread from a producer like Needs in Connecticut, or um, haven't ever had it, but I know that the, I know that the quality of the product is incredible, Salu uh, Bakery in Washington, D.C., um, these things are so delicious. I have no idea how I'm supposed to go back to any other bread after this. But the one of the things that we're hoping for and look to, you know, attack is these things could be at a better price if we had more of the infrastructure and systems for these more regional based products. You know, the at the moment, if you're just using bread as an example, we don't have a, we don't have small regional 100% whole grain mills that have access to regional grain farmers because we've we've moved away from that and we've moved our grains to the Midwest over the last 60, 70 years. And we've put all the mills over there as well. And if so, we're kind of working against that. Like the 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 price of the bread is, I think, equivalent to the flavor and the work that goes into it that especially we do here at this bakery. But if we had more regional mills with more bakers that understood this, this practice, it would change, it would change the the accessibility. Now, if there, if you didn't have to come all the way to New York, or if you didn't have to go to, you didn't have to go to Elmore mountain bread in Vermont or down to Washington DC to get this hundred percent whole wheat bread. But if you, if we had more knowledge, more infrastructure in localized areas, it would, it would drastically change like what we're talking about. And that that certainly is the broader conversation about thinking about how are we in, investing in this stuff is to think about, yeah, all the the labor and the tools required to make these things happen. You know, for, for us consumers, we're so lucky, like these things just show up in the store, you know, high quality or not. And it's it's magic to us, right? We are the disconnect between so many of us and our food is so high. And to think about the steps taken or not taken to get something to our plate uh, is 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 important. And, uh, you know, again, as a professed geek from afar, uh, to people out there listening, so one, of course, we'll link to why you should watch the Chef's Table episode about Blue Hill. But there's, I remember very decidedly amongst everything, there's a 
I remember the, the there was a tasting of whole wheat bread amongst the staff and like you guys are a team that I'm sure gets to taste all sorts of very cool things all the time. And yet you could see all these people like eating bread being like, Oh my, Oh my God, this is, this is remarkable. Um, yeah. You know, again, speaking of, cause this could apply to sugarcane crops, grapes, whatever. One of the things beyond good quality soil and, you know, the right seeds and things to think about is, uh, and I forget, I think you talked about with respect to strawberries, Hannah, but I think, you know, one of the things I remember also hearing too, is like, as we've witnessed the size of the tomato or the apple get bigger, like a number of things can contribute to its overall flavor, but it's like, we have this allure, if I would understand, like, you know, uh, from a consumerism standpoint, it's like, oh, a bigger apple looks cooler, so it must be better. But a lot of times it's more one, the flavor varietal might not be as high quality, but we're also basically just dispersing flavor through more apple. Is that, I'm, it's it's complex, but that's one of the things I feel like I've taken away from the way we're breeding for plants these days. Yeah. I mean, if you're an apple farmer and you're hoping to sell to a big grocery store uh, chain or a large delivery service, what they're going to ask you for is likely shelf stable, transportable, unbruised, like no ugly fruit, um, and big, like a big honey crisp apple would probably catch most people's eyes, be super sweet, um, feel like you're hitting the mark when you get home and have that. Um, but rarely are people and breeders asked to breed for flavor. And that's at like, that's a core theme in so many of our stories uh, with farmers and fishermen and seed breeders, whether we're talking about beets or peppers and truly like no, our potatoes uh, we talk about all the time and truly like it's, it's crazy hearing chef Dan's stories about just like no one was ever asked for flavor and we don't care if they're smaller. In fact, smaller is probably better. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just crazy, like knowing that history and not having like an agricultural background myself, it seems obvious. But when you think of like where the money is in the industry and what people are asking of these farmers, like, of course, they have to go that way. That's their living. That's their livelihood. Uh, but it takes like the brave souls and also to partner with, you know, more culinary institutions that are willing to pay for these products. Like we will pay you to grow whether it's an apple or a small or a strawberry or a potato or beets um, that you probably can't sell anywhere else, but we'll buy everything you make and you breed for us. And so that's where the cycle gets healthier, I think, and continues. Mm -hmm. So uh, one other thing I have uh, in mind, and then we're going to get this tea brew in here, but uh, certainly you guys can let me know if there's anything we haven't covered you'd like to. Um, a question I want to ask, and I'll, I'll grab this kettle here in a second, but uh, uh, so real quick, uh, Donovan, tell us about, so I, I want to talk about ugly food in a second, and then like if there's uh, there's equivalence in the drink world of things you have to try to like convince people to try that they're like, oh, like that's a terrible type of wine, but it's more like it's been made poorly, but so Donovan, tell us first, because uh, we're gonna we're gonna brew up some tea here and we'll have some links out to it. So tell us about your grain tea program. Uh and uh I'm gonna grab this stuff right here. So tell us a little bit about what inspired this. Definitely. Yeah. 
you can if you probably sleep it for like three minutes it'll be perfect definitely um what inspired it was honestly a, a lack of its availability um, in this country so going back to kettle tea um they have a very beautiful and delicious product, um, soba cha. It's their buckwheat tea that they bring in from Japan. 100% buckwheat, no caffeine. And I drink it every day. And Chef Dan drinks it every day. <laughs> and it's addictive. It's heartwarming. It's delicious. Um, and at and the end of the day, buckwheat is incredibly um, great for the soil. It's a great cover crop. It's a great cash crop so when you look at uh, a country like japan um and you you think of cuisine in japan and a lot of people will think about um not just only rice when it comes to um the cuisine but sake um and sochu and when you have a uh, good agricultural processes around making that rice the highest quality you can you're going to need to rotate that rice out what worked for japanese was buckwheat and with the buckwheat came soba noodles and soba noodle is it's kind of a reaction it's a reaction to the need to have the buckwheat rotation you know soba cha or soba tea buckwheat tea comes out of the same necessity for this healthy land stewarding system. So when you come over to the United States and you think about the Green Revolution and you think about these chemical fertilizers, a movement away from rotation of crops, um, mono cropping of wheat and corn for both animal feed and white bread, you removed the need to figure out what to do with the buckwheat, you know, you, you, if you're not used growing buckwheat because you're only growing the corn and the corn is working because you're spraying fertilizers on it. Why, why would a farmer spend time growing buckwheat that they're going to fetch very low prices per pound from, and then no one's really going to eat it. Um, so after when we started the tea program, actually, um, in fall of 2021, we were, we were, um, and mostly me was running around trying to create herbal teas um, from the property. Dan knew that I had a background of more, you know, imported fine teas like from um, China and Japan and Taiwan, but he wanted to use products off of our farm and other farms that promoted um, soil health. So for the first three months, that was working okay. <laughs> I was uh, getting better at it. I was I was finding uh, flavor um, combinations that were getting better and better. But mostly what I was doing was looking towards other cultures to see what types of plants they were using in their teas. You know, if you look at Korea, mugwort. Not We don't have the same type of mugwort that they have in Korea, but... They're, they uh, have a rich culture of using mugwort, which is a weed that is plaguing the, the garden right outside of uh, the, the window um, to my left. So I, 
I was on that path until we hit winter and then there's no more forage. Um, and I thought, okay, well, we have this rich library of grains in the bakery and there's other cultures that have a cuisine around grains in terms of tea. What if we could recreate the same scenario um, that is in these other countries but kind of the reverse. We make a really delicious tea that people love. And then because they love the tea, they want more tea. And because they want more tea, we need more uh, rotation grains. And if we need more rota rotation grains, you know how this country operates, the farmers will provide it. <laughs> right. um, so that's been the goal with the grain tea program. And the issue that I found with that, that we kind of, I was hinting on earlier was the variety of buckwheat. So what you're having right now is um, a variety called Meg song. It's um, if you like, if you like scotch, then you'll, and beer, you will definitely like this tea. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah. get, get, getting very rich. Yeah. To your point, like, you know, barley grain notes out of it for sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, it's a variety called Megsong, which is a variety that was developed at Washington State University, uh, a university, a land grant university that we love to work with, um, that was a barley bread for human consumption. Almost all barley in America either goes to the spirit slash beer industry or it goes to animal feed. And the in-between, because of these infrastructure problems, doesn't really make sense. It's it's if it's a bad barley year, it's easier to sell it to um, animal feed. And if it's a good barley year, you're going to pay the premium to dehull the barley and process the barley in a way that you would fetch a higher price from the, the, the breweries and the distilleries. So what Washington State University looked to do is create a hullless barley, um, a barley that was with little after harvest production uh, per processing, humans could eat it. And it's delicious. And barley is a great great rotation crop um, for anyone um, operating at a grain farm. So that's where this tea came from. But speaking of that inefficiencies and in systems, the tartary buckwheat, the variety of buckwheat that is most commonly used in um, soba making in Japan was incredibly difficult to find growing in America. It took us like a year and a couple I don't know, dozen dead ends to find someone that was growing tartary buckwheat. Um, and we finally found it and it's called Bouchard family farms. They're like, I don't know, 30 minutes South of the main, uh, the Canada border in Maine. And they grow tartary buckwheat for pancakes. And when we asked them if we could have the whole groats, they were very confused. <laughs> Cause they're like, well, we're going to, just make them into flour because a buckwheat dehauler people don't know this is very expensive like just to get the, the 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 grain outside of the shell is incredibly expensive and there's only like two mills that do it in the whole country it's like one in the finger lakes and one out west and that's it almost all the buckwheat you would consume in america comes through those two mills um so there's some roadblocks but the whole goal is is Buckwheat is so good for the soil and it's so delicious. Um, so that's 
that's really the the mission of the research development that goes into the the grain teas. How do we make a delicious product that will force farmers to grow the rotations? Um, and that's just one example of what we're doing. Almost every every dish that we serve at this restaurant that Dan creates is like it's it's with that same mindset um, in mind. I um I think it's great that as we think about you know again our country was fortunate in many ways I suppose but like to be founded you know and that's it's a whole other story about you know the creation of the country but uh but that to to come to a land of abundance is a gift in a way but many of the great cuisines of the world were born in these places that are harder strapped or they had to figure out how to do with less from the get go and to think about to look at like how is how is Japan like handling its rice product? Oh, through buckwheat. Like so. Anyways, I think it's, I think it's great that you're looking at other cultures to try to inform decisions that help you even further the mission of Blue Hill. So, um, and thank you for sharing this. This is lovely. I uh, speaking of making things at mass, I live a very short walk away from the original Anheuser Busch Brewing facility, and so on most days of the week, I I smell barley and grain. In the air all the time. So that's not a bad bad thing to wake up to, though. That's actually quite comforting. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm never mad when I smell it. So I'll I'll say that. So, um, so Hannah, I had mentioned I, I'd mentioned kind of the idea of like, are there things that you guys feel like you had to work to convince people from a beverage standpoint? Because you know it's like when you talked about no bruised fruit, right? How do we think about? people either in a grocery store or in a supermarket serving them something that either doesn't look good or they have a misconception about are there are there things in the beverage world that you've encountered at all you've had to work to kind of educate people to want to try so many things um <laughs> i was actually first thinking about it in terms of what we've worked with um at the the bar program and and food wise here at blue hill uh, things such as not weed, um, eat it to beat it. There's so much on this property. I know so many people that have lost houses to it. Um, you can like legally sue people if they don't disclose that they have not weed on property and you buy a house and then it destroys your property in 20 years. Um, so I thought that was so funny that we would be serving like not weed spritzes. And if you've ever had like a commercial problem with not weed, I thought that was getting some great reactions from guests. Um, things like peach thinnings um, are something we're working with a lot right now. And, and just like any fruit or grapevine, you have to go through and do a green harvest. Um, so the fruit that's not going to make it typically just gets cut and honestly just left on the ground mostly. Um, and so the rest of the, like the vigor of the plant can go to the, the fruit that is going to make it. Um, but we were doing it with peaches. And first the kitchen was working with these underripe um, like green peaches essentially, and they were brining them and they made them taste like a green olive, like a Castle Vitrano olive. And it was the most amazing, mind-blowing thing. And then we started working with the peaches um, like culinarily and also at the bar program. We've worked with colostrum before. We've worked with corn cobs that make great lemonade. Like the list goes on and on. Honestly, we're always asking what there's leftover of like in the residency series, there was lots of 
cilantro stems because they were using the cilantro uh, specifically for Jorge Vallejo's residency. And so we did a cilantro stem tequila infusion, which is just as easy as it sounds, but it made the most delicious uh, cilantro infused tequila that you could have at home. And um, so that is truly what we seek to do here is I think our, our beverage program functions entirely differently than a lot of like standard fine dining or even like New York city bars. Like we will never be that, uh, we want to be like an apothecary. Um, and so when you walk into our front bar lounge, like we want, yeah, you to like have your eyes drawn to like a few seventies vintage Amaro bottlings and, uh, Eric Calvados, uh, our Eric Bordelais Calvados that we have and some really cool bourbons and scotches, but we also want your eyes to be drawn to like these big jars and like infusions and tinctures and bitters and homemade Amaro that we're making. And some things don't work. I would say 40% don't wind up tasting good, but we're always experimenting and it can't hurt because these are all like byproducts of another thing the kitchen is working on and you know donovan often has like a a roaster up there actually like roasting the grains and so it's just constant play and the bar program really should just be an extension and is just an arm of the preservation uh work that is done here on a daily basis and we are just grateful recipients of it the uh the knotweed makes me think of um it's not too far from you guys, but are you familiar with a uh, Tamworth distillery up in New Hampshire? Hmm, so, no. so, uh, one, the guy, Steve grass, who's behind it, he helped, uh, cultivate Hendrix many, many years ago. Um, fascinatingly interesting guy, but he has, he told me when we chatted that his hope is that on the wall of the TTB that regulates spirits for everybody out there listening, he goes, I hope there's a poster that calls us the most annoying distillery in the world. Uh, but they, for example, they took an invasive crab up there on the coast and they put it into a whiskey. And so they called their crab trapper whiskey. And so, yeah. So anyway, so Tamworth is worth looking up because for you guys, it'd probably be easier to source if it's, you know, worth for the program, but they, they're definitely thinking about that stuff. And they're, that's how we operate. I already already have the website open. Yes. And Steve is an absolute character. Highly recommend it. Um, this honestly, this has been a wonderful conversation. Is there is there anything that has come to mind we haven't covered? You guys want to want to say before we begin to wrap up? I was just resonating on the fact that we talk about so many things here at Blue Hall on a daily basis. Between all of our like chefs meetings, lineup is often like forty five minutes of like a master level class and you know, some new species or variety of a vegetable or, or certain fish we're getting, you know, it's, it's so much information, even for us, never mind to translate to a guest. And so I think you can have all of these things in mind and the best source program for wine and spirits and beer and beverage and non-alcoholics, which we're really focusing on now and tea and coffee. But if you don't know how to present it to people, in the right way, it doesn't work. And you need the right people to do that primarily. You need the right space and time and a menu. Like people are having 40 plus courses here. How are you supposed to relay all this information to them without being 
pedantic or, or, you know, not reading the situation if someone's on a date and you're talking to them about, you know, sugar cube melon pickling liquid, like maybe not the right moment. Um, but I also think what I've learned a lot in buying for the program since 2019 versus just being like a sommelier here um, is how you present beverage information to people. And it can be verbally, right? Like taking cues and hints and and learning how to speak about such high level things. But it's also like actually how you present it physically. And that's something we've worked a lot on. And I think a lot about like books and maybe bringing that English major background into it a little bit or just loving to, to read and study on my own time. But things that have been employed and it wasn't just me, but over the years that I think present our information in a different way than you normally see are like, for instance, we have a cocktail map, which when you come in to drink and dine with us, you'll get to explore. But instead of it being like a cocktail list, which we used to have for most of Blue Hill's history, we realized like getting this, when you come off of your farm tour, walk around the property, it feels like you're just getting kind of like a map like a tour guide map. And some people don't even know where the cocktails are, but we have this beautiful hand-drawn map of the property. And so instead of just doing like a, a pun or a name for a cocktail, um, we actually base it off of either lo the location of a certain ingredient or like a lab or our uh, processes that we're inspiring that cocktail from. And so I think it, and it changes all the time. Like weekly because things are constantly changing at all the different spaces of the farm but I think it's a much more enjoyable way because someone might ask you like we had a western barns cocktail which was a a nicer word for like the butchery or the meat processing lab and so using like wasted meat products whether it was like charcuterie or duck fat we used pheasant fat before like really gnarly things talk about like trying to market something uh, that doesn't normally sound appealing in a drink. Um, and so it was a way for us to kind of naturally touch on these things. And um, our, the wine list, which you probably have seen a little bit about, but we created like, this is not a wine list, which is a cheeky way um, to also introduce more of like a book within the wine list. And so there's vellum sheets that have overlay of basically my handwriting as a way I would mark up if I were studying something. And yeah, some things like are not meant for people to read throughout their whole menu, but it's really just to show like the thought and the stories behind it. And I think it's actually made people look up at us and see how much we care about even how we present the information. Say, so, you know what, you know what the menu is, we don't, well, you just choose and here's our budget. Um, and so I've I've just learned that kind of the most in the last few years, It's it's not what you have to work with, but it's how you present it. And I think that's something that the team has been really great and flexible on helping us create so people can understand it better. I, as someone who works a lot with lay people and you guys are talking with them all the time too, I, I think about, yeah, that my problem with cocktail books is one, I feel like most of them are written by professionals for professionals, even if they don't realize it, but that even in incidentally, and Hey, when I come into blue Hill, I would certainly hope that, the things presented are going to look very elegant, but when presenting something to someone at home, uh, if we make it, it's, I feel like, and I said this before, it's like, I feel like when it looks too good in like a, a book, it's like, you're just daring them to be like, you're never going to make it look this good. And so I feel like in a, depending on the forum, whether we're trying to invite someone to try something 
uh, at the restaurant or at home. Yeah, figuring out that set and setting, I think, is extremely important. So, uh, no, thank you for sharing that. And yeah, the idea of like the markup notes, I think, is valuable because they're never going to have most people are never going to have your your prowess about wine or yours about coffee and tea. But how do you even begin to think about wine or coffee and tea? What questions should they be asking? You know, it's like these are the things that really help make them feel like more like they're on the inside right there. So. No, thanks for sharing that. That's great. Yeah. Anything else from you, Donovan? Anything else top of mind for you right now? Top of mind. No pressure. No, no. no. I, we really, I mean, we covered some, we covered some heavy topics. <laughs> we, we got, we got way into it and we didn't even get into non-alcoholic. So maybe another time for that. That was, that'd be great. Uh, Cause hey, a fascinating category that it's cool to see it evolving, but um Still, certainly when I taste some of the NA spirits, I feel like, like, okay, we got a long way to go here, but like, it's good that we are really pushing right now for sure. So, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, like the consumer trends post-pandemic are really different, um, yes. especially in the alcoholic category. Yeah. Um, we will certainly link out to Blue Hill on the web and social media. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you guys on online at all social media wise or whatever, anywhere they should look for you guys at all. If, if, if you're, if you're looking for that kind of traffic. So. Yeah. You can follow mainly my personal journey and pictures of my dog at Hanza H A N N Z A H on Instagram. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Donovan Ingram. It's um, at God damn it. Donovan. <laughs> When I when I was tagging you in something the other day, I was like, I was like, this is the right, yep, this is the right one. Cool. Yeah. So <laughs> uh it's a work day. Thank you both for taking time to chat. This is lovely. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Thank Chris. You. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktail.